Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Emma Watsky coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya on the lands of Ghanamina. Our team pays our deepest respect to Elders past and present. We extend this respect to all First Nations listeners and to the rightful custodians of the lands you are listening in from. And today on the show... Uh, I was absolutely ecstatic when I was rung up by Professor Gavin Williams to join the trial and then I was even more ecstatic when I did all the tests and I was eligible to join. I did it for three months, walking for half an hour on a treadmill. Over 20,000 Australians live with spinal cord injury, which has drastic impacts on working, social and emotional lives. But could a new treatment trial offer hope? Also, an historic deal sees Australia open borders to hundreds of residents in Tuvalu escaping climate disaster. As the nation remains one of the lowest lying in the Pacific, what could this deal mean for both parties? And later in the show... Unfortunately, Australian jurisdictions do not have a good track record on the protection of the right to protest or even matching what we have to do in terms of protecting all civil liberties, not just the right to protest, but all of them, compared to what international human rights law requires. The protest continues against anti-protest laws, with governments across Australia called to adhere to the Declaration of Our Right to Protest, endorsed by 60 civil society organisations. What does international law say about the right to protest and impact on democracy. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, this week, Western Australia's Housing Minister John Kerry says the government is doing everything in their power to repair vacant public housing in Roebourne in the Pilbara region. The state government has spent hundreds of millions on maintenance and refurbishments, but advocates say it's not enough and not addressing the root of the cause. The Wires contributor from NADA Media, Gerard Mazza, asked housing advocate Dr Betsy Buchanan her thoughts of Mr Kerry's statements. I do respect the current minister, but I do believe that they should try and use First Nations people to repair those houses. They could work in with local land councils and also with prisoners who've been trained. I think that that would be an absolutely wonderful project if local government and the state government, Paul Papalia, John Kerry and the local shire, local land councils could all work together to try and repair those houses using First Nations people. Are you concerned about the statistics? I mean, I think the most recent statistics I've seen from the end of last year, it was 12% of social housing in the Pilbara, which was vacant. Do you think it's right to say that that's a kind of natural level? No. I think that that is extremely concerning. Almost every day I write a letter about a First Nations child who's gone into hospital because of overcrowding. And this is often with life-threatening illness. And the mothers are completely helpless because they wait and wait for housing. When something is that serious, everything should be done to try and address uh, the welfare of First Nations children should be an absolute first priority. There shouldn't be anything that's too hard and housing is absolutely the core of that. And I think that First Nations prisoners who have been trained and First Nations unemployed people, their heart and soul would be put into repairing those houses. 
Minister Kerry was in the Pilbara this week. Um, he was visiting the site of a accommodation facility that's being built as part of the Northwest Aboriginal Housing Fund for trainees and apprentices. Uh, do you welcome that kind of step? Oh, look, I welcome that very much, but I do think there is an immediate crisis and, you know, when children become sick, they often don't have a whole lot of time and also those illnesses they get from overcrowding can cause lifelong damage, including kidney breakdown. So I think it is an immediate crisis and you've got the resources there with prisoners who've been trained, with the Shire who could do a lot to help and with the land councils who obviously had had definite interest in those houses being filled with First Nation people. I think that the resources are there and it should be done immediately. What kind of differences do you see on the lives of people and communities when they have good housing, stable housing that meets their needs? I can't believe the difference. John Kerry has been very outstanding in that way and that he's allowed purchase of new houses for First Nation people means that they have much more autonomy, they have much more self-esteem, much more that they want to work immediately, their children can bring their friends home. That's something which has been raised with me repeatedly, that the children feel ashamed of bringing children home to overcrowded, run-down houses. And straight away, the mothers say that the children would like their friends to come to them. I think that for the next generation, it's such an urgent, overwhelming problem. I I don't think WA has any excuse to wait for these things. I think shy councils could do a lot more, and I'm sure they see that themselves. But they've had a history of discrimination, and I think they could step up. The whole community could. Aboriginal disadvantage is largely, I think, due to inherent sort of apathy and also lack of knowledge and also unconscious discrimination. And it could change to the land councils have shown the way. What I'd really like to share is my anguish about the children. Again, in having a child in ICU and having them discharged to an overcrowded house, We've lost two young First Nations children in the metropolitan area through that, through lack of housing. One was discharged from ICU and died in the overcrowded house. So I know this is happening all through the state and I would plead that people see our First Nations children as their first priority. Everyone can do something, even if they just lobby the local shire and say they would support an initiative to have the houses repaired by First Nations people. Everyone can do something. First Nations housing advocate Dr Betsy Buchanan speaking with Nada Media's Gerard Mazza. Last week, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese announced a landmark deal to relocate citizens from Tuvalu to Australia, a country located 5,000 kilometres east of our nation. The deal comes after Tuvalu faces displacement from climate change as the sea levels continue to rise. The wise contributor from River FM, Sean O'Shaughnessy, asked visiting fellow at the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law, Dr Tamara Wood, how significant this deal is for both parties. It is significant. So Australia has agreed to offer, I think it's 280 places per year for Tuvaluans to move to Australia, presumably on a permanent basis, to live and work and and study and, and do all of those things. 
It's significant because Tuvalu, of course, is one of the countries right at the front line of climate change and the communities there will be some of the most impacted by the adverse impacts of climate change. And the Caldor Centre, as well as many others, have been calling for countries like Australia to do more to provide opportunities for those communities to find solutions to that issue. Mm. So, you know, certainly migrating to Australia is not the only solution and it's certainly not the preferred solution of most Tuvaluans, but in the sense of providing opportunities and choice to those who are most impacted, it is really significant. Climate change has been top of mind on the Pacific Islands Forum. Uh, Do you think this is a precedent that might uh, extend to other Pacific Islands nations? I think it could, and it's probably important to understand the Australian Tuvalu arrangement in the context also of the newly adopted Pacific Regional Framework on Climate Mobility. So it has not had quite as much attention as the Australia Tuvalu deal, but it's a a framework that's been endorsed by Pacific Islands Forum leaders just last week that deals with you know, lots of different aspects of climate mobility. So not only providing migration pathways, but also regional collaboration on other issues related to climate mobility. So helping people to stay in place where that's where they want to do, helping to ensure that communities are consulted um, when developing solutions to climate mobility. You know, there are and will be many others addressing not only, you know, movement, but all the other aspects of, of climate mobility as well. I've heard commentary uh, around the Pacific Islands Forum about the idea that, uh, you know, there could be some movement towards a Pacific uh, Union similar to the uh, European Union, uh, which would allow uh, these kinds of things more broadly. Is that is that something which is gathering momentum? Look, I think it's one of those issues where all opportunities are being explored. You know, there's no one-size-fits-all solution to this problem, and that's for lots of different reasons. You know, the impacts of climate change will be felt differently by different communities and different countries. The the wishes and desires of different communities, individuals, families will be different as well. So, you know, exploring how free movement agreements can be developed and improved or implemented in a way that is particularly relevant as climate change impacts are increasingly felt is certainly one option. But again, it's priority of most Pacific Islanders is to stay in place. The uh, Torres Strait Islanders are calling for the Australian government to honour its duty of care to prevent the climate emergency from getting worse. Is that likely to be something that the Australian government's going to take serious, more seriously now after this Pacific Islands Forum and this Tuvalu decision? Look, let's hope so. Certainly, um, you know, many Pacific Island civil society groups have been quite vocal in calling on the Australian government not to just provide what might be a band-aid solution in terms of migration pathways, but to take more seriously efforts to mitigate climate change impacts in the first place. And, you know, Pacific Islanders are wonderfully skilled at protecting and defending their culture and their heritage. And so... I think, you know, if Australia is to be a good Pacific neighbour, it will take just as seriously those obligations as it does its obligations to help people who are already impacted or are impacted in the future. Yes, it is the case that some people will choose to move or will be compelled to move as a result of climate change, but there's 
a lot more to be done about that than simply providing, you know, visas for some of those people to come to Australia. Mm. Um, and in that context, the Caldor Centre releasing a set of 13 key principles on climate mobility that can be used to guide governments and other stakeholders, so affected communities, civil society groups, and so on, in thinking broadly about how to come at this issue. So those principles are very holistic, very comprehensive. There are 13 principles in total. Each of them has, you know, a number of key priorities and potential actions that people can take. So, you know, whether you're a, a government official or, a, you know, an administrative um, officer or a civil society representative, there will be tools in there that you can draw upon to make change in this area. Visiting fellow at the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law, Dr Tamara Wood, speaking with River FM's Sean O'Shaughnessy. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Programme. The protest movement in Australia has seen a long history as civil liberty groups have strived for change. Protesting has been instrumental in equal pay for women, First Nations land rights and more recently climate action. But in recent years, states and territories across Australia are adopting anti-protest laws, labelled by advocates as draconian. This week, 60 organisations, including the Human Rights Law Centre and Australian Democracy Network, have called for governments across Australia to adhere to the Declaration of Our Rights to protest. Lawyer at Human Rights Law Centre, David Mahir-Kanellis, shares more. The right to protest is a fundamental human right that allows us not just to express our views, but but it also allows us to participate in our democracy. It's actually, in some ways, the gateway human right, because the the right to protest is how we make sure that other human rights are realised across the country, particularly in South Australia very, very recently, in May of this year, governments uh, all over have actually taken moves to erode the right to protest in a very deliberate way. In the last 20 years, we have seen 34 different anti-protest laws being introduced around the country. That includes the Commonwealth. And 26 of those passed. We can actually see that the right to protest is deliberately coming under attack, particularly in recent times. Those sort of attacks are really being weaponized against climate and environmental protesters almost exclusively. So far, the declaration of our right to protest has received over 60 signatories. What have been some of the comments that you've received around anti-protest laws from groups that depend on collective action and rallies for change in such times of crisis? When we release the, the declaration of the right to protest, it's effectively a bit of a line in the sand. It provides a minimum sort of standard of what the protection of the right to protest must look like. And that includes, effectively, we're now at a position where we have to remind governments they have a duty, a legal duty and a requirement to protect the right to protest. And we also have to really remind the police they have a duty to also protect protest and protesters. What we are hearing from our partners all over the country, from big organisations like the likes of Greenpeace and Amnesty to small grassroots organisations and sort of single organisers, is that people actually feel, that, particularly through both their legislators and their police services, that they are creating a, an environment where the right to protest and, and the good things that have come out of protest, those things are not being valued. And what do international standards and human rights law 
course say about protesting and how are Australian jurisdictions upholding or compromising on this? Unfortunately, Australian jurisdictions do not have a good track record on the protection of the right to protest or even matching what we have to do in terms of protecting all civil liberties, not just the right to protest, but all of them, compared to what international human rights law requires. So for example, international human rights law requires that police cannot ask someone to not protest again, say through the imposition of police bail, but that's absolutely happening. International law is incredibly clear that police cannot ask for a payment for policing a protest or attending a public assembly. But that is absolutely the law in South Australia following the changes that happened there in May. Lydia Shelley is a lawyer in Western Sydney and president of New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties, who are one of the 60 signatories of the Declaration of Our Right to Protest. Lydia says part of residing in a healthy democracy is the right to engage in social and political participation. Part of living in a healthy democracy is your capacity as a member of the public to be able to engage in political protest, even if the protest is disruptive or inconvenient, or on an issue, for example, that the majority of the public or the majority of government doesn't agree with. So it's really important to remember that the right to protest doesn't depend on the political representation on any given day and that it is a right that should be protected. What are some of the attitudes governments and authorities are adopting towards protesting and protesters in perhaps more recent years and and what are the main concerns here? Certainly in a post 9-11 landscape, what we've seen is a conflation between protesters and peaceful protesters and criminal behaviour. We've seen the demonisation of protesters. We've seen essentially protest movements almost become akin at some points to terrorism. And if you look back and you could turn your mind back down to when, for example, under Abbott and under Scott Morrison, when we saw a range of climate change activists, the the type of political comments that were directed their way was absolutely appalling. And what we've seen is a successive and systemic demonisation of protesters, not only in the public domain through through certain media uh, representations, but to really attack and delegitimise the very issue that protesters are protesting over. And we saw it today as well with, unfortunately, members of the MINS government criticising young people who are deciding to strike and to really use one of the very few means that young people have in this country to exercise their democratic right to protest. What influence does increased policing of peaceful protests have on society as a whole, but also on resources and public funds? Effective policing can only occur when communities have faith and trust that the police force are not going to succumb to political pressure with respect to either the investigation of potential uh, criminal offences or the cracking down of people who may hold a political opinion that doesn't reflect, for example, the views that are held by those in government or those in power. So it's very important when we're talking about police responses to understand that they play an integral role to ensuring not only that communities are safe, but that protests are also conducted safely. And when we talk about the overwhelming resources at the ready of New South Wales Police in particular, It is really unfortunate and quite frankly very scary 
for a large portion of their resources to be allocated to the surveillance and disruption of protesters, particularly with their use of bail conditions. Lawyer and President of New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties, Lydia Shelley, speaking with The Wire. According to organisation Spinal Cure Australia, more than 20,000 Australians live with a spinal cord injury, and there's a new injury every day. Spinal Cure Australia is funding a treatment trial called eWalk Neurostimulation, which helps to rewire impaired neural pathways with electrical impulses, promising to transform the treatment of spinal cord injuries. One of the participants is Cherie Palmer, who has seen big improvements after being diagnosed with T11 paraplegia. So what does the trial involve? The wise Eduardo Jordan spoke with Cherie and Executive Director of Spinal Cure Australia, Duncan Wallace, to find out more. Cherie Palmer, and I'm a participant in Melbourne, yep. Duncan Wallace, Executive Director of Spinal Cure. Yes, the the particular program that we're talking about at the moment is called the eWalk trial. This is the flagship uh, clinical trial of Project Spark. Project Spark is developing the world's most promising intervention for people with spinal cord injury, which is called neurostimulation. This uses currents of electricity to try and wake up pathways in the spinal cord which have escaped that initial trauma in order to get the brain and body talking again. And it's uh, there have been very, very promising results in small trials overseas but uh, we are doing the large-scale clinical trials here to get the confirmed scientific evidence that this intervention works so we can get it out to everybody that might make use of it. Sherry, I understand you were part of the trial earlier this year. How did you find out about this project? I was on the uh, website, and I'd, every time they send out information, I always read up on it, and I've been very, very keen looking out for a spinal cord trial. So I heard about it on the internet, yeah. So you um, got involved with it, you started with the week trial and all that. How do you feel now? Amazing. Uh, I was absolutely ecstatic when I was rung up by uh, Professor Gavin Williams to join the trial. And then I was even more ecstatic when I did all the tests and I was eligible to join. So I did it for three months, walking for half an hour on a treadmill or wired up with the electrodes for 30 minutes, three to four times a week sometimes. So it was quite strenuous, but very, very rewarding at the same time. Duncan, how critical is this project for Australians with a spinal cord injury? Up until now, there has been absolutely no hope of any recovery from a spinal cord injury, any return of the lost function. Curing a spinal cord injury has been considered an impossible dream. But neurostimulation is actually starting to improve people's function, not only the things like walking, which the eWalk trial targets, but it's the other things that people might not understand that uh, are taken away from us. It's things like bladder and bowel control and your feeling and uh, pain levels and so forth. These are all starting to improve. So it's the first time there's been anything which has the potential to improve people's lives. We, uh, we have great hopes. And do you have like any statistics about, you know, Australians with a spinal cord injury at all? 
there um about one person every day is going to have an accident and injure themselves and become paralyzed and there are around 20,000 people living with a spinal cord injury in Australia and there's really very little that devastates a life more quickly or more thoroughly than a spinal cord injury and it's not just that human element spinal cord injury costs the Australian economy something like 3.7 billion dollars a year What are some of the requirements for participants to be involved in this project? Well, we're looking for people like Sheree who have a they're paraplegics, but what we call incomplete. So they can move some muscles in their legs. They need to be between a thoracic 2, which is T2, it's up in the top of your back there, down to T11. So have injured themselves somewhere on, on their back there, and they have to be at least one year post-injury. Um, so anybody like that, we are very interested in to talk to them. Fantastic. Sherry, I guess this project and this research has changed your life. Could you please uh, describe us in which ways um, has it changed? Well, it's uh, certainly uh, got me involved in something that's very, very exciting, as Duncan just stated. And whilst I was doing it, I started off uh, just walking with calipers and on an electric treadmill And in my final testing after the full completion of the course, I ended with uh, walking still with the calipers, but I was walking with just one single crutch and I walked sort of, you know, quite, quite away. So I, I feel that if I was to continue with this program, that even more improvements will come about. I'm just so, so ecstatic to be involved in the trial. Trial participant Cherie Palmer speaking with The Wire's Eduardo Jordan. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening. The Wire is a co-production between 2SER in Gadigal, Sydney, 3ZZZ in Nam, Melbourne, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane, and Radio Adelaide with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Remember, you can check out our stories at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and X. I'm Emma Watsky, coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya, Adelaide. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.